You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, thank you that we can gather together again, uh, this side of glory, this side of eternity, with uh, people that profess your name, that desire you, that you're drawing to yourself uh, for all time. And we just thank you for the opportunity to worship together, hear the word take the sacrament and arm ourselves for the week ahead uh, with all the promises that you've extended to us and thank you for the hope of the resurrection and in Christ's name we pray amen so okay well uh, so I decided to take on another topic oh I'm sorry I turned it because I only thought I was going to get two people at first and then is that is that all right? <laughs> all right. Um, miracles. What's the problem? That's where we're starting today. And the first thing we might ask is why, you know, is there a problem for Christians? Uh, you know, why, why might we scratch our head over a question like miracles? Our entire faith uh, hinges on the possibility and promise of a miracle, of something, uh, of God's activity that we might call the miraculous. Why this topic? Well, it, like some of the other topics I've, I've picked uh, over the year, it's, I scratch my head how we use these words and how we use language. And uh, I, I, you know, I do this with my students uh, at, at the university. You know, how we use language and how we use words matter. But we don't always pause to think how we use them. So you think of something like a miracle, how it's the idea of it or the language of it has entered into our our common vernacular and a miracle on 34th Street, right? Or the miracle on ice, right? And then uh, numerous songs with miracles and then our mention of miracle. And, and you probably can think of something I haven't thought of. Or just in every day you say, well, you know, it's a miracle that he hit the ball, <laughs> you know? Or it's a miracle that, blo- you know, you fill in the blank. We use it adjectivally to describe things almost in a casual way or um, or sometimes in a more serious way you know some in, somebody uh, survives something very tragic or potentially tragic or some something um, y- you get the point and accidents and so we say, well you know it's a miracle and, and you think about it the way we're, what we're really doing is responding kind of emotionally when we use language the the, the language of a miracle that way it's a it's a it's a felt response to a kind of a emotional moment often that we don't know what else to attach to it we don't quite know what to say about it um, but I think we know with some reflection I think we can consider with some reflection that that's uh, that's not what the Bible means by a miracle maybe in part but not definitely not in whole and it's definitely not what uh, I think the, the Word of God, what Scripture wants us to, to hear when we hear or talk about the idea of a miracle as it relates to the character of God, to, to His sovereignty, and to His purposes. I think something else is going on. So that's how I got to this, this topic, right? Just thinking about language and how we use it and, uh, and, and, and belief and, and that kind of thing. This is a th- three-part series. So uh, if you came to this one, you have to come to the other two by 
law and uh, <coughs> we skip next week and then we're we're going to finish up in the last two two weeks from now we'll, we'll finish up the, the end of the month today what I want to do is basically outline the idea of a problem because and again it, it depending on where you are in your your, your sort of reflection on this, a miracle is a hard idea for the modern world in certain circles. In other circles, it may be too easy of an idea, like I just sort of outlined, the emotional sort of response. But let's face it, the, the narrative is such in the West that by and large, uh, culturally speaking, miracles are not... Uh, considered at least part of the discourse of progress and uh, of, of modernity. For, and I want to talk about why today. Uh, that's what I want to set us up with. And in the last two classes, what I'd like to do is look more carefully at what I think the miracles in the scriptures are, what they're intended for. Carefully look at, uh, as, as, they, as they push point us toward the coming of the kingdom and the arrival of the kingdom and the work of, of Christ. Very specific purposes involved. All right, so that, that's kind of the setup, what I'm, what I'm trying to do here. And you can hold up scorecards if I succeed or not. And let, let, let's see, and then of course, let's interact as, as we go, uh, as you see fit. Is there a problem, what's the problem? Let me say this, any approach to the question of miracles depends on three other questions. It's not a freestanding question. It's not a question that can stand independent of other considerations. Okay? And we'll get to definitions in just a minute, but I want, it, I want these three considerations kind of uh, to, to, to govern our, our thinking on this when we talk about this, both internally as the church, but also with people outside of the church, outside of the Christian faith. You know, I deal with them every day, and, and I know you do as well. Uh, but but for the first question is always, how do you understand God? That's going to govern any question you have or any answer you give to the idea of a miracle. The second is, how do you understand Christ? How do you understand Jesus? Right? And the third is, how do you understand the authority of Scripture? So any conversation or any reflection on miracles, I think, has to come out of those three pericopes, those three sort of starting gates that you have to walk through first. Because it, depending on how you answer these, is going to have everything to do with how you get to this one. <laughs> what is a miracle? All right? Now, again, in, internally, in I, I want to say the church, but in um, as we'll see in a moment, most churches, we answer these questions certain ways. We answer them according to a pattern of authority. We understand God and Christ because the authority of Scripture, the Word, testifies to this authority, and then the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, seals this. It, it, it gives us faith. It, it, God gives us the faith to understand this authority. Well, understand may be hard, but at least to humbly approach this authority. That might be the better way to say it. We approach this authority. So the idea of miracles, once you've rounded that corner of authority in the nature of Scripture, what Scripture teaches us about God and Christ, it's not so hard. It's not so hard. But think about how hard it is if you haven't 
or if you're outside of belief, or if, if, if you haven't considered what, who God really is, or, or what the truth really is about yourself, your need, what Scripture teaches about yourself. Mir- that, that's, in a, that's, a, that's the Grand Canyon. <laughs> you have to leap, especially in a, in a modern, scientifically progressive world. Scientifically driven, progressive world. That's the other thing that sort of, that word got, drove me to the topic. All the conversation about what science is the last three years, right? I'm not going to dare try to touch that one. Uh, well, I might, but uh, I, I think in general, you know, what, what is science kind of stood behind some of this idea, right? Okay, so I want to use our imagination for a minute, or maybe you're personally struggling with it yourself, which is keep these things in mind as we approach the topic, and we're going to return to these three questions through the series um, and how they shape and frame. How do you cross the Grand Canyon? How do you jump this chasm um, apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from God's Word? Um, Scripture itself has no single word that we can translate into miracle. Like a lot of words and a lot of definitions that come out of Scripture, especially Greek, we have narrowed it to one word. <coughs> we do this like, for instance, with the word love, that when there's four words for love out of Greek. Well, there, there, there are four words also that, that we can reference in Scripture that that indicate a miracle. The ergon, the work, the wonders, the taras, powers, dunamis, dynamite, you can always remember it that way, power, and signs, the semion, right? The works, wonders, powers, and signs. Scripture uses all three of those words in some variation that we translate into the word miracle. Our English word comes from a miraculum, which is something that evokes wonder in Latin, marvel, amazement, you know, which can mean a lot of things. It doesn't necessarily mean an act of God in Latin. So uh, does that help or make sense that, so we have reduced it to one word, but through scripture, and we'll see this through scripture, um, especially when it comes to signs and wonders, the repetition of that phrase, signs and wonders, uh, which we're going to do next session. The repetition of that, even in the translations of the Septuagint and the Old Testament, it's a constant repetition to know that God has acted in a very particular and peculiar way for a particular moment in history and in nature, in the natural order, by performing a sign or a wonder. But works and powers also. Okay, so that, that's our, our background for how we use this, this language. If I had to pick a, a passage, which is always difficult, if, and sometimes even silly, <laughs> to say, well, we're going to choose this passage. But I do think this passage is helpful, again, for framing the whole conversation, the whole in, inquiry in, into the subject. And the passage comes from John chapter 20. Okay? Um, and I, 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 you know, I did a little bit of homework on this. Most of the commentaries agree that 
if you want to reduce a miracle to, to one thing, what do they do? They point us to Christ. They're intended for our faith. They're intended to show us something about Christ. Now, John 20, I won't open this, the Bible, but, but John 20 is the resurrection story. It's, the, it's, it's Christ's resurrection, according to John. And John, of course, writes in a very personal way, a very accessible way. He doesn't write like the other gospel writers. So he, he invites us into the narrative in a different way. And he, he addresses us in a different way. And after he's told us the resurrection story and the rea- various reactions to it, he's got this little, it's almost a parenthetical at the end. And actually, I think, in, in a f- quite fascinating, it comes right after the Doubting Thomas narrative as well, where Thomas says, I want to see it. I can relate. So, again... The skepticism followed by, the, the, the skepticism answered with the, the resurrected body of Christ. And then this, this, it's not a parenthetical, but it almost reads, it now, now, an aside. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the ones that are there, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's a beautiful summary, I think, of what a miracle is intended to do. The signs are, are intended to do. And I think it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a launching point for also reading the miracles in every other part of the Bible in some ways. A, a kind of arc narrative of what we mean or, or thinking about about miracles. Signs, so, and think about this, we only have a partial recording of what these miracles are. Other things happened, right? It's like, it's like when you read the Bible and you hear references and many others believe. Think of all the people we don't know. We don't know their names. Think of all the things that did happen that we don't have, but the intention whether they're written or not, the ones that are written, the ones that are preserved, are for our faith to eternal life. So whatever else a miracle is, whatever else we, we, want it, we explore here in terms of what Scripture does, our souls are at stake, our eternity is at stake. Something in the relationship between ourselves and God is at stake in the nature of what a miracle is intended. It, it may not just be that it's intended to amaze us or wonder, give us wonder as, that may be part of it, as the Latin says. But according to the Gospel of John, it's life. I'm going to do this that you may understand who I am as the Savior. I do these things that you may understand who I am as a Savior and what your need is. And of course, we'll talk, develop this more, I hope, over the, the coming conversation. All right, nice. Uh, this is uh, a Christian church. This is what we, um, this is the air that we breathe. This is our oxygen uh, to, to hold on to these promises and these truths. But we all, no, that, that's not where uh, the cultural conversation is. It's not something that people walk around in agreement on. 
in, <coughs> in the modern world. I want to take the, a good part of this session now to say why. And, I, and I, I do this kind of building out of my own field of modern intellectual history, trying to show that ideas come from places and they affect people in real place and time. They have consequences, uh, and, and including not believing in miracles or doubting the truth of a miracle. And there are four positions I, I would like us to consider as, as we go forward. There are four positions that have shaped the way we talk about uh, the idea of a miracle and, and what it is, okay? The first is the pantheist position. The second is the deist. I'm doing it slow, you can read. Materialist and theist, right? Now, <clears throat> let's bracket that one for the moment because that's what I've been describing. I mean, the Christian faith is a theist faith right, in a very particular way, um, uh, in, in a way distinct from Judaism and Islam, say. But these three things, uh, believe it or not, if we don't get up every morning and use these words, we, we live in this environment that has been shaped by these three ideas, the pantheist, the deist, and the materialist. And all three of these things have shaped the way we understand uh, ourselves, God, and the natural order, nature, all right? Now, here's the, the, the first sort of asterisk I would put here is these aren't new. Even though we say we culturally sort of live in the, the, a world, a uh, world, uh, an environment shaped, an intellectual or moral environment shaped by these things, okay? They're not new. The ancient world had versions of them, all right? Uh, Bible's right. There's nothing new under the sun. The ancient world, but I'm not, I'm not concerned about the ancient versions of them. Because in the, develop, in the, in the main development of Western thought uh, over, over time, uh, by and large, a reconciliation emerged between the idea of creation, nature, and the way we inquire into it, or science, the way we interact with nature. Now, I'll say that again. A kind of truth or a kind of commitment grew over time that was acceptable that God created, that within this created order, uh, not only has he established his word, as a way of knowing him, but nature and the created order itself is an expression of God's will or God's purpose or God's revelation. All right? Just think about that. All right? Because in the modern world and in modern times, and when I say modern, I'll clarify, I'm, I'm really talking from the 1600s to the present. In the modern world, it's that continuum, the idea between creation and knowledge of God and, and, the, and, and a revelation of God in nature has been broken. That's what's been severed, all right? And it didn't happen all at once, like on a Monday in 1648. Well, we're done. It happens over time through a, a collision of events that emerge out of a, a, over you know, a couple of centuries, really. 
where it became more and more considered uh, by the intellectual class that create that the, first the, the idea of creation in nature perhaps don't share a relationship and then maybe the idea of creation is just a myth altogether why is all this important because it has everything to do how we start there with what the idea of a miracle is all right so let me let me let's let's go through a couple of these or three of these pantheism pantheism identifies god with the universe or regards the universe as, the, as a manifestation or aspect of God, okay? So a pantheist argument with God is everything. There is no transcendence. There is no transcendence in a pantheist argument, okay? And there are different manifestations of this I don't want to go into, but, but you know, if you're really dying, then we can talk after. <laughs> but, but ultimately, it's that God is... Um, is a, is a unity with the universe itself. So we say, where do you find God? Look around you is a classic example. Or God is, God is just the unfolding of natural processes. Okay? It became very popular under a gentleman named Baruch Spinoza. Baruch. Um, <coughs> he famously wrote a treatise on miracles, of all things. And he was a philosopher, a Dutch philosopher. It's an event, a miracle is simply an event we cannot explain. It is parasitic on our ignorance. It is in reality a natural event that surpasses our limited human comprehension. To a perfect understanding, nothing would appear miraculous. Uh, Spinoza uh, pushes the conversation probably further in the 17th century than anyone had before that Basically, what we're calling a miracle is something that is really a natural phenomenon we don't understand yet. We just haven't developed the, the intellectual or scientific equipment to understand it yet. He was a pantheist, by the way. Deism. You've heard this one, of course. You've heard all of these. but it accepts the, A deist accepts the existence of a creator on the basis of reason, but rejects belief in a supernatural deity who interacts with mankind. Uh, this is the idea, okay, uh, transcendence, yes, but no imminent personality, no connection to creation, something, an unmoved mover, a, a concept, a perfect philosophical concept, put things in motion and left them there, right, and left us to ourselves. Many iterations of this, Voltaire, uh, being one of the most famous in France, we have American versions of this as well different versions. Truly, whoever can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities, says Voltaire. If the God-given understanding of your mind does not resist a demand to believe what is impossible, miracles, the supernatural, then you will not resist the demand to do wrong to that God-given sense of justice in your heart. In other words, what the deist Voltaire and others are, are trying to say is, you know there's no such thing as a miracle. But if you continue to down this irrational path, you will give yourself to other kind of irrational passions as well. Reason must be your governing uh, human activity over these emotional responses to the supernatural. It's a similar argument. Reason can explain what we're calling the supernatural. 
Okay, the deistic argument. The materialist argument, and I would say all three of these have manifestations in the 21st century, but this one has a profound manifestation. Nothing exists except matter and its movements and modifications. That's it. We, we're living in a material world. I was going to quote Madonna, but I'm not. Mm -mm. Nope. And I don't mean the Madonna of Catholic faith. I mean, yeah. We're living in a material world, and that's it. <laughs> that's it. There is no supranatural order to things. Uh, again, the footprint here is enormous. The genealogy of this is enormous for modern world. David Hume, great British philosopher, uh, uh, again, he, he wrote a book uh, dealing with the question of miracles. He would be uh, an example of a materialist thinker, but he was it, it, a, a very complicated thinker. A miracle is a violation of the laws of nature, and because firm and unalterable experience has established these laws, the case against a miracle is just because it is a miracle, as complete as any argument from experience can possibly be imagined to be. <coughs> it's a quote in isolation, but the key word there is our experience. There's nothing in human experience that can lend itself to the probability of a miracle, says Hume. Okay? Well, all right, the materialist argument has been tremendously influential, especially uh, as it has been disseminated through uh, Darwinian theory in the 19th century. That when you start adding and snapping the, the blocks together, the arguments just become stronger in certain cultural or intellectual circles that miracles simply are not possible. Right? But again, before we go too far down that road, I push us back to this original sentence. You've got to ask these questions first. All right, even these gentlemen had to answer those questions first, okay? So, why do I do all this? It, because this, this is great. It's great. Get up on Sunday morning and talk about a bunch of dead philosophers. Who cares, right? Uh, because this mode of thinking, and let me draw this slide back. These three modes of thinking had tremendous influence on Christian theology. in the form of liberal Protestantism, um, roughly 19th, 19th and 20th century, okay? It had, it had tremendous influence on Christian thought and how Christianity itself in the West began to talk about the idea of a miracle. And frankly, it split the church. And we're living with that split today, both internally in our own communion and <laughs> with, with other communions as well. Okay? How so? Well, without overcomplicating the narrative, because I don't want to do that, I don't have enough coffee in me to do it yet, but <laughs> all that stuff we just saw about pantheism and deism and all that, what happens is some smart guys come along, mainly Germans, who turn around and say, you know what? That's not the whole picture. Humans have a need for religious belief, and that need ultimately serves the public utility 
of morality and ethics. It, whether it, now, they're different thinkers. I don't want to, the names will just confuse us, but what they do is ultimately over time, you get these guys, these very bright guys who say, no, religion matters, but we can never really look at religion as a supernatural phenomenon anymore. Because obviously modern science and modern approaches to scripture have deconstructed, they have shown that whatever those ancient people wrote about can't be a reality for modern people. So wherever we're going to find religion, it's going to be in the emotional or the ethical, in the way we live together socially. And again, if I could just put one picture up, it would be Germany in the 19th century. <laughs> because that's where this was fertile, but it came to American shores in the 20th century through what through various ways but ultimately liberal protestantism whatever whatever form it is it's european or american form adapts itself to to modernity by saying what we're calling miracles what we're calling the supernatural actually has explanations on rational terms so what we really want to do is figure out how to be What's the moral question at stake or the ethical question at stake in the scripture? What, what is Christianity as a historical moral phenomena unless a supernatural or miraculous religion? And that's where it left us. The split has never been healed. Okay? It's a long story. It's a complicated story in some ways. It's a fascinating story. In America, for example, it's played itself out in the New York Times. This was serious stuff in the 19-teens and 20s up, up north in the Presbyterian seminaries uh, and such. Uh, first, it's come to the south later, but we're he it's here. Uh, so, why, why this narrative? Because the way we talk about miracles has everything to do with where we fall in this narrative. All right? If we are, in other words, what am, I, what am I saying? It's out of this story, this, this genealogy of ideas, that ultimately the question of miracles gets decided in the public court of opinion. Naturalism, materialism, scientism, if the church starts with that as a governing um, sort of ideology, a governing point of reality, is going to disallow or at least call strongly into question the possibility of the miraculous. When it does such, it calls into question Christianity itself. That's a bold claim, and I, I realize that. But I think it's defensible. Because ultimately, what, what happens is this modern move toward faith in science and faith in reason becomes a kind of surrogate uh, faith in, in, in human understanding. All right? It leaves all truth and meaning thrown back upon ourselves and our experience. And anything we want to call miraculous or, dare I say, religious becomes private 
experiential. Um, a kind of desire to do good in our humanity, right? It changes the narrative of both who we are and the question, frankly, of our creation, whether or not we're sinful, and if that's a reality, and whether or not we're in need of redemption. So it becomes a great crossroads that we still live in today. So you can go to churches today that do not believe in the miraculous and yet claim and pray, claim the same God and pray in the name of Christ. And you can also uh, go and basically uh, worship within these churches where the idea of miracles is completely uh, negated or at least marginalized as something that belongs to a different epoch of human interpretation. I, I in the next two sessions, I, I, I don't believe this is what Scripture allows. So I go back to my problem of, the author, of, of authority. I, I push us back that way. What is our authority? And how, how do we reckon with our authority? And to that end, I suggest there are several responses. God exists. God created the world and continues to rule over it through providence. The Gospels are trustworthy historical accounts because of their, both their, of their ultimate divine authorship through human agency. As such, God can work miracles where He wishes. These miracles further His purposes, and the miracles of the Gospels actually took place. The Christian religion, the Christian faith, I believe depends upon these propositions uh, for its coherency. For its coherency. And thus, looking forward, as we move into the next sessions, I would say miracles actually serve several purposes. And, and this, this will be the, the guide for the rest of the, the discussion. When we look at Scripture, if we take the, these propositions as true, a miracle accredits God's messengers in the Old and the New Testament. The miracles confirm God's message. They demonstrate God's sovereignty. And a big one, uh, they demonstrate the presence of God's kingdom, the inauguration of a new order that promote faith and belief. So, as the bells ring and call us uh, out of class, I'll, uh, I'll end there. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.